Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with doctors, dietitians, athletes, and various fields to break down the evidence behind the whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Shane Williams to talk about heart health and the plant-based lifestyle from a cardiologist's perspective. Dr. Shane Williams is a medical doctor with a private practice in cardiology and internal medicine located in Muskoka, Ontario. He was born and raised in Newfoundland, attending Memorial University in St. John's, and then completed his Doctor of Medicine degree and postgraduate fellowship program in internal medicine at Memorial as well, followed by a cardiology subspecialty fellowship at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Williams has both personal and professional experience assessing the science and implementing nutritional approaches following a whole foods plant-based diet. Since 2010, he has been incorporating nutritional education and training into his own everyday life, as well as the care of his patients. He is the founder of Williams Cardiology and Wellness Medical Center and has empowered thousands of patients with plant-based nutrition and helped them avoid invasive cardiac procedures so stay tuned for more on this in the episode. Shane, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. We had the pleasure of having you speak at the annual Plant-Based Canada conference a few years back, and we thank you for taking the time to speak with us again today. Oh, thanks for reaching out and asking me to, uh, to join you. It's a pleasure to be here. To start things off, could you share your own plant-based story and briefly what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so I graduated as a cardiologist around 2007 after too many years of school and then um, and then came north to the Muskoka area and practiced, you know, pretty conventional cardiology, which I still do. And around, I think it was around uh, 2000, I stumbled across a copy of the China study. Having read a number of books about healthy eating and environmental issues and so forth, but they sort of caught my attention, but the China study really, really shook up my understanding of how much data already existed about plant-based eating and how potentially uh, therapeutic changing someone's diet is towards health. Because up to that point, I'd been where I see a lot of physicians traditional today, they're skeptical that, oh, can changing your diet make that much of a difference? And so I was in that camp. And so I... Um, stumble across it. Uh, I actually reached out to Dr. Campbell and much to my surprise, he emailed me back like within 24 hours from an email that I later found out was his personal email. <laughs> so I've since discovered, uh, having gotten to know Dr. Campbell somewhat and Dr. Esselson as well, two of these giants in the field are just like that, very casual and uh, very happy that people are, you know, willing to look at their research and, 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 and uh, spread their message. So I kind of had to do that myself to sort of vet him out to see, you know, is this really, is he's kind of uh, legitimate as it seems. And he's, he's just as nice a person as he appears on forks over knives, just salt of the earth, you know, down to earth type person. So, so then I started incorporating some of these principles in my own life and lost about 20 pounds over about three months and realized, you know, I'm feeling stronger. Uh, 
feeling so much better. And I should start mentioning this to my patients. And that was around, I think, uh, early 2011, thereabouts, early, early 2011. And I started mentioning to patients and, you know, developing sort of an elevator talk to sort of introduce the concept to them. Because, you know, everybody knows dietary stuff or seems to, there's a lot of opinions about it. So I started mentioning, and then over the next few weeks to a few months, as people were coming back, they were noticing significant improvements in their blood sugar control, blood pressures, and anginal control, so chest pain with exertion. And so um, as that was starting to go on, I realized, my gosh, I'm going to have to make some sort of a documentary about this, really. And literally was within the same week, Forks Over Knives was released. So Forks Over Knives saved me probably. My wife is a documentary filmmaker, so she estimated it probably cost at least half a million dollars to make. So that video saved me a lot of money. Um, you know, And it's a very important instructional video that anybody who has any interest in plant-based eating, we, we always get them to say, well, as a first step, just go and prime, you know, the knowledge about this area with with uh, with forks over knives and keep an open mind. And um, and I really think this can help you. So we we continue to use that as a as a clinical tool to introduce people. So that was 10 years ago, really now near more than 10 years ago. And I've been I'm still practicing regular cardiology, but but, you know, over various times have had uh, different educational programs. We're, we're currently now, since COVID, gone completely online with a once-a-week program. But we do a one-hour-per-week, six-week intro program that's pre-recorded. And, and it's been quite a journey. And it's been great to meet so many people in the plant-based area, too, including, you know, who are two of my heroes, really, which will be Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn, and so many, so many people's heroes that uh, these men and uh, I think, you know, they're appreciated now. But I think, like I often say, they're in their 80s and late 80s. I think it'll it may be 10 or 20 years before people look back and realize that, well, we knew these men were important figures and leaders in this area. But I think in a global sense, they're not even appreciated as important as they are. So um, so it's going to take time for people to realize the impact for them to basically be rebels in their own field and to, you know, spread the truth about the importance of nutrition and, and health. So, so that's kind of a nutshell of where I am. You brought up a lot of really interesting points and aspects, especially from the data and the evidence that's available not only to the public, but from the research realm, that reaching out to individuals led to these collaborations and connections. And also through your work as a cardiologist, the traditional practices versus the changes that occurred based on things that you've experienced in your life. And we're going to delve mm -hmm. into um, some of those points as well, including the work that you're currently doing, such as those online courses. But as a cardiologist, and many others may recognize the importance of addressing heart disease as a serious health issue for Canadians, especially given the stats where, according to data presented by the Public Health Agency of Canada and Heart and Stroke Foundation, that about 1 in 12 or 2.6 million Canadian adults live with diagnosed heart disease. And it said that every hour, about 14 of these individuals pass away. So can you tell us a little bit about why addressing heart disease is important based on your own experience and work and what you see in your practice? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, an epidemic in developing uh, developed countries. And, uh, and that's what I guess what made it is one of the reasons why I found cardiology interesting. The other reason was sort of completely um, uh, geeking out on a lot of the cardiology technologies and angiograms and echoes and knowing that, my gosh, you can actually take a a real-time x-ray like fluoroscopy and look inside the chest and the arteries of somebody who's half asleep on a table and being able to open up an artery. I mean, it's it's literally like uh, Star Wars kind of exciting technologies. But at the same time, I knew that if I got in this field, there probably would be so much work to do that I'd have lots of work to do. So at least, you know, we'll have work in the future because because it is such an epidemic. And what I do see is I'm, I'm a basics guy, you know, I, like I think, I think it's really important just to go back to basics and uh, first principles all the time of what we do. For example, the, one of the biggest epidemics I see, which is untreated high blood pressure, you know, the number of people I get sent from their family physicians, not knowing what's wrong with them or having dizzy spells or or um, fainting episodes and, and so forth. And, and you do many of these tests, nothing serious checks out, except they consistently go around with high blood pressure. And how many are told that, oh, have you ever been told your blood pressure is high? Well, no, I get it checked every now and then. Family doctor says it's okay. And that's a simple thing that, that we know from the data and you don't have the warp or do any kind of an ideology about you know, radical environmentalism or even plant-based eating and just say so many people are out there with high blood pressure that is either missed, not addressed, or the patients are not aware of. We we know if we treat that, we could significantly reduce your, your chance of dying early and maybe as important or more important of avoiding having a stroke and so forth. So I see such basics in our healthcare system, just omitted, missed, not taking enough time to do with the basics. So I guess that's also why same thing is true with dehydration. Like the number of cardiac tests are done for people with dizziness and faintness and spins and so forth when most of these people are dehydrated. And nobody actually says to them, like, do you actually drink water? Well, no, I'm never thirsty. You know, So you wouldn't believe the amount of suffering and money that's wasted in evaluating somebody who's dehydrated and nobody through their whole chain of care asked them, could you be dehydrated? Yeah, I guess I could. They, they, they consciously drink more water and the problem resolves. So another example of just like super basic stuff. We don't need fancy sci-fi stuff, just controlling blood pressure, hopefully with food, but if not with meds, but for heaven's sakes, control it, uh, adequate hydration. And then, you know, the other issues about very strong data on regular exercise and avoiding cigarette smoking and so forth. So I believe in just going back to basics. And if, if most physicians did that, even if they never even entered plant-based eating realm, healthcare would so much improve, you know, both combination of public information and individual patient information. You know, physicians in general, I guess they're saying, well, yeah, we make more money than you because you see, we don't, you don't see near as many patients as we do. But the problem is when you run through 50 patients and do a poor job, it's way better to see 20 patients and do a better job. You know, it's just like old stuff that your grandparents told you. It's just just focus on quality and uh, and all the other things will take care of themselves, including like being happy of the job you did and being happy you got out of bed.
So, so when it came to food, again, I was programmed to think, well, food is really what does the heavy lifting and prevention of heart disease. My God, it's the drugs. You know, the drug companies got all the answers. And realized when I saw the data on food, this was another ring home m- moment, I think, for me to say, my gosh, I'm going after all these fancy cures or treatments. When really, if somebody if somebody was bothered, bothered enough with angina and symptoms of heart disease, I know not everybody wants to go plant-based because they want their six ounce or 12 ounce steak and they don't want to eat their highly stimulating food. But if you get sick enough, I got a group of patients who are open to the idea. They just need physicians to tell them the idea. <laughs> and once you tell them, yeah, maybe they won't go 100% plant-based, but they'll darn well sure be happy that somebody with a medical degree brought it up to them so they know, okay, this must be legitimate. It's not right that only doctors have that level of authority or, you know, mostly, but but we do. So we really kind of have a social obligation then to use it for good and to say, listen, I'm here to tell you, I've done a lot of school. And at the end of the day, more vegetables will help you. <laughs> and they'll say, wow, maybe it's that important. And then coach them in that area and the benefits that they can accrue even if they're not 100%, but if they go 50% or 70% plant-based, it's astounding. So it's another one of those jeepers. After $25,000 evaluations, the answer was more water. Millions of dollars of evaluations or whatever, or billions in the healthcare system, really the answer is, you know, meds have a role, I, I believe, but but they're massively overused and they're not first line. They really, it should be a lifestyle issue. And I think you know, now it's becoming more and more trendy to talk about this, but but 10 years ago, it was weird, right? It was like we were totally in the weird camp of, my God, plant-based eating. That's only for hippies, like, you know. <laughs> so that was considered so weird. So luckily, and I think through the work of Colin Campbell and people like that, and through the work of, you know, experts um, like the people who started Plant-Based Canada, bringing the legitimacy to a mainstream and now plant-based is is becoming part of the vernacular in the language. You go into the grocery store and they got plant-based detergent and they think that's a good thing, even though I don't even know what that is. But so plant-based is, you know, such a such a word and an expression that five to seven years ago, plant-based either didn't exist as a concept, even though of course it did, but in, in the common everyday language it didn't. And it's certainly once once you start seeing it in advertising, you know it's gone mainstream. And so it's it's interesting. And I'm glad that this has happened while Colin Campbell and Caldwell Lesselton are alive to see it, you know, because uh, it's it's a nice increased level of awareness that even the hardcore meat eaters are realizing that, yeah, I guess a I'm never giving up meat, you know, as their mantra might be, but they'll say, I guess I better cut back. So I think we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Especially over the past, as you mentioned, the past decade, there's been quite a bit of change. And hopefully it's not just a trend change, but it's one that's yes. a sustainable change. And yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And I think it's it's due to, again, that that there are those brave rebellious people like Colin Campbell to, you know, and Esselstyn to buck the system, to put data down that, you know, people might say before it was like, oh, we don't really know. We don't have much evidence for that. Well, we do have a growing body of evidence. But before they could say that, because it was obscure and hard to find. Now it's everywhere. 
And then the other issue is, well, I don't like plant-based foods and I want my meats. Okay, well, that's a personal decision, but at least now we have the data to back it up. And then over time, and often it is the way human beings, it takes humans, all of us included at some level, to sometimes get desperate to try almost anything. And then when you do it, you realize, my gosh, I should have done this 20 years ago. But anyway, it's no good. You can't go back on time, but you can say, I should have known about this 20 years ago. I should have taken it more seriously. But now it almost is never too late to improve the situation. I, I recently had a, a man pass away from congestive heart failure uh, a few months ago. And mm -hmm. he's a perfect case. You might think, my God, you're talking about dead people to talk about successes. But, but he had such severe heart failure 10 mm -hmm. years ago that he should have been dead eight years ago. And he adopted a plant-based diet, and it's a difficult thing to prove in any individual case, but he immediately stabilized and had eight more years of really high level of functioning. And so so I, he's a case where most cardiologists would say, dude, the horse is out of the barn. There's no way to help this man. And no matter how late in the course of someone's disease, almost no matter how late, I find people, including with end-stage heart failure, which is a real terrible condition with a very, very poor quality of life, once you actually get them convinced that, and sometimes it is out of desperation because they've tried everything else and they're totally fed up and their doctors can't help them anymore, you get them on a plant-based diet. And I don't know the exact mechanism, whether it's reduced inflammation, better blood flow, less viscosity, less strain on the kidneys. Don't know how it works in the black box, actually mechanically. We got theories, but we see these people, their fluid retention improves, their blood pressure comes down, their ability to breathe and do what they want to do improves, their quality of life significantly improves by going on a diet that some years before they'd swear they'd never, you know, eat that way. But when you're desperate of life or death, sometimes it takes you to make that radical move and then you realize Many of them realize, my gosh, it actually is not that radical. I should have done it years ago. But right now I'm making the best of every day I can. And the differences are quite significant. I had a number of people who I couldn't help anymore with Lasix. It just wasn't working anymore. Their continued fluid retention, mm -hmm. plant-based diet, two weeks, 20 pounds come off. It's 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 amazing. And and the cool thing about it, as typical doctors are impatient kind of people, because we want results immediately. This may not work immediately, but it works within days to weeks. So you don't even have to have tremendous patience for the wait. Oh, are we going to be better in six months? No, you're going to notice a difference in many patients in days to weeks. So, so they don't have to have tremendous levels of faith. They just set the uh, program, coach the people who are willing to try it and see the benefits. And, you know, we can't guarantee every case is going to go perfectly, but there is, I've seen so many dozens and maybe hundreds of cases that have a significant turnaround within days to weeks. Certainly angina improves extremely quickly. We've had one, I can think of many, many people, but one guy in particular literally couldn't walk 10 feet without disabling chest pain, changed his diet, refuse to have bypass surgery. And again, you're thinking, I'd be thinking, he's gone a bit too far. I don't know if mm -hmm. he can be helped. Radically changed his diet and went super strict. And within six weeks, he's swimming 20 laps in the pool with no chest pain. So if, if somebody was told me about it, like I say in most of the interviews I've had, I wouldn't believe it. I'd be like, no, come on. It can't be that. Like you're trying to sell me vegetables. It can't be that 
powerful an effect that quickly. Not in every case, but in most cases, it is that quickly and it's astounding. And so that's why I'm glad it's becoming more and more mainstream because hopefully, you know, other physicians see our message as less of, oh my God, he's a radical hippie or, you know, he's a, oh, you know, he's trying to save the whales. And it's all a radical message. It's not a radical message. It's actually a message that's not that hard to do. And the benefits after you've maxed all of the other med options and surgical options, there's additional benefit you can give that patient. So I see food as like the cliche food as literally as medicine, you know? And so the exciting part is what I'm sure you feel and most of us feel in this area that, well, if it works that well, when the house is burning down, then imagine how good it could work when you're just into regular maintenance of a house, you know, that you don't need to wait for it to go that far and prevent it from going down that route, which is, you know, we, we can even help situations that are catastrophic. Well, gee, then you must be able to definitely help hit situations that are not gone so far. And, you know, that's kind of our, our message, I guess. So you bring up an important point, like you've, um, shared cases where they've had a devastating or life-changing situation that kind of prompted them to be motivated to make these changes. And that's more in terms of the management to improve their quality of life and potentially extend their life as well. But also there's the prevention aspect. And you mentioned that there was data in this area, and I was wondering if you could speak to the evidence that has been published that maybe yourself or other physicians have been referencing and the considerations that practitioners and potential patients should be keeping in mind. Well, I mean, we've known from, um, especially from the Adventist life studies and so forth, registry data where people go in and and put down detailed information on their eating habits, and then they're followed over time prospectively. And we've known that eating habits to prevent bad things happening like heart disease and cancer, very, very strongly related with anywhere from 30 to 70% reductions in risk. So very substantial. And put that in context with medications, which have a role, but one of the most potent medications to reduce cardiovascular risk would be aspirin. And it reduces rate of heart attack by somewhere between 20 and 40%. And that's considered a knock it out of the ballpark level of success. Most other medications have reducing levels of protection, you know, anywhere from 8 to 20% reduction for things like ACE inhibitors and so forth and, and reduction in blood pressure. So, so ironically, when I was in training, I used to think the numbers were reverse, reversed. Right. I thought that, well, food makes a difference, but maybe like a couple of percent. But meds, I mean, that really does the heavy lifting. Like I said, I'm sure that reduces it 60, 80 percent. Well, actually, I had my had my data inverse is that food really has that more powerful than meds. So they both I think in many people would establish vascular disease and especially the way I was trained. And you see somebody who shows up with narrowing in their carotid artery or we know they've got a narrowing of their heart artery or they're diabetic or all three, we know those those people are high risk and they should be on some basic things like aspirin, maybe a low-dose cholesterol med. But again, the work that those meds are doing are in the range of 20% reductions as opposed to food potentially could do 70% reduction or in Esselstyn's small study up to 90, over 90% reduction. So people say, oh, it's only 200 people. Well, okay, so maybe if you did a bigger trial, it wouldn't be 90%. 
maybe the reduction in risk would only be 70. Remember now, only 70. That's pretty substantial. So if we could cure 70% of heart disease and leave our resources for the remaining 30%, that'd be a nice day's work, right? So so that's, I think that's where I would, we've, we've known the prevention data is just that for certain people, that's, that'll move their needle. But I guess being a behaviorist and seeing human suffering and humans get better and knowing my own tendencies, sometimes it does take desperate situations before people will try what they see as a desperate change in their eating habits. And which in some ways is sad, <laughs> trait of human of the human condition but that's the way it is right if we're, we're creatures of habit and if i'm comfortable with something even if it's somewhat dysfunctional i'm going to tend to stay there as a human being as opposed to when you get so desperately unhappy or sick that's when people are more open to try new things and and it is a funny thing about human beings not so funny but that's the way it is and it's in that cohort of people who okay i'm sick of being sick I've tried everything else. What do you got for me? It's in those people where the benefits are seeing the biggest because those people are the highest risk, you know? So, so now convincing the more well people without obvious clinical disease to ease back on the chicken wings and the beef and the oil and the butters. I think that's, you know, really where, where the main area has to be now in public health moving forward. And I think, you know, I was thinking about it today before we mm -hmm. spoke, wondering what, how I was going to put it. I mean, how do you see, you've never asked me this, but how do you see the future of it, right? That's a future question, but please go ahead. Yeah. Like, you know, how do you see, like, I personally think, I mean, who, who nobody can tell the future, but I personally think, I don't think meat will ever be completely eradicated. And I don't know if it should really, because in terms of people's ability to choose, but I do see both with the pricing of meat. And the increasing awareness of impact on environment and on individual health, which is, you know, especially my wheelhouse, I see something that people will continue to eat meat and dairy and these things, but I think they'll be eating them in much, much less amounts as time go on. And it'll be, I, I was going to say to you, I, I've never had caviar, but how people will eat caviar once a year because it's so expensive as a little treat. I think that's how meat ultimately is going to go and those type of things, both for expense and through the awareness of the impact, the negative impact, you know, but I think there'll always be people will always want certain amounts of meats and so forth. But again, our goal is be nice. Yes. For everybody to be perfectly healthy and never do any unhealthy thing. But I think if the, the goal will be harm reduction now and increasing the awareness so that the overall demand is lower and that the overall health is higher. You know, I think that's a re reasonable goal. And I think that's where it's ultimately going over the next 10 to 20 years. And it seems like the industry is also thinking about this because there seems to be more and more companies that are working on the cultivated meat or meat substitute types of products out there. Yeah, they're so getting into the area. I don't think that's a sustainable place to be. I don't think that's mm -hmm. a sustainable place to land. But, but I can see they're testing the markets to see what will I mean, as it turns out, beyond meat and beyond beef or whatever they're called, when you look at the fat contents and process processing in these products, I personally think, now this is, may sound radical to my plant-based friends, I actually think it's safer for you to eat a small amount of uh, beef steak actually than eat some of that processed stuff. The best thing would be to eat none of it. But, <laughs> but um, you know, so I don't think that's going to be a sustainable place. for. But for maybe for people who are entering and testing it out, 
and saying, oh, I can't live without a meaty type thing in my food. Okay, well, maybe as a temporary transitory substitute, it might be, play a role. But I think, again, as more people become aware of wellness and nutritional, and they get nutritional uh, literacy, they'll realize that jumping from inflammatory, high-fat red meat to inflammatory, highly processed fake meat is probably not the jump you want to make. No, that definitely goes into the fact that there are plant-based choices out there that are not necessarily healthy, even though they're considered exactly. plant-based. People could be choosing them for a multitude of different reasons. And yeah. this is just going back to given all your knowledge and the evidence that's available and in your practice, could you describe, I know you alluded to this a little bit, but how you incorporate plant-based values into your practice and if you usually see individuals at the prevention or management stage and how things may differ during this? The way the way the referral system, especially in Canada, works for a cardiology consultant, is, of course, I'm seeing, uh, you know, when the house is burning. So I'm seeing people who have survived the heart attack or have uncontrolled high blood pressure that the family physician can't decipher or don't know what to do next. So that's the patient I see. And and it probably has to do with a feel of when you're speaking to somebody, which is judgmental by the very nature of our practice. If, if, if you're not judgmental as a physician, nobody likes to say it out loud, but I mean, you'd never get through one patient. You got to prioritize and triage. Who are you likely going to give this message to that's likely to do something with it? Now, that being said, even to the most hardcore meat eater who clearly doesn't want to talk about diet, I gently mention it and then sort of test the waters and see what I get. Most people, though, are unaware of the importance of food. And so they're open to the idea. So I complete usually mention it slightly at the beginning and then get into the conventional stuff. And then near the end, the last third of the time with the patient, I say, now, listen, you know, meds are have a role and I think we're going to get this under control. And these are my plans and my testing, whatever. But you know, there is an increasing awareness of uh, in, in the research literature of the importance of your dietary habits on this condition and on, on other conditions. And I, I'm, I'm not here trying to make everybody vegetarian, but, but it's very, very and growing data that food makes a big, big difference to your condition. And what would be appealing to you is that if you don't change your diet, I might need three medications to get you to where I need you to be. If you do change it, I might be able to get there in only one medication. And as an ex-pharmacist, I can tell you, less medications, the better. Both at cost and potential side effects, some of which we can't even predict. So it's a, you know, medications are a tool. And if you have to use a hammer, great. But if you have to use a steam shovel, if you can get away with a hammer, that's a lot less messy process. And so that's how I kind of rationalize it to them, say, I think you should, why don't you, uh, would you be open to learning more about healthy eating? And that's where I dropped the, once you go to Forks Over Knives website, and I think it's a $3 download or something, just go with an open mind again. And I say to them, you're going to see people who ate a standard American diet with lots of meat who were very, very sick people. And they switched to a completely clean diet and had almost like a Lazarus risen from the dead effect. But it's not only if you go 100% will you get benefit. And I say to them, so keep an open mind. You'll get the most benefit if you go 100%, like any health program. 
But even if you went 50% and 70% and, and introduced, tried some meals that are also on the Forks Over Knives website, just getting them get their foot in the pool, their toes in the pool, so that they realize, oh my God, some of this plant-based food and this starch-based food is actually pretty tasty and keeps me fed. I don't need to just eat salads and be starving. How's your new eating program? Great. You know, somebody walks in front of them with a hamburger. They want to, like, assault them for the hamburger. They're that hungry. That's not sustainable. So if you get them eating more along the lines of a high-starch, plant-based, unprocessed food program and realize... I can stay fed on this. This might be something I can do or something I could do 70, 80% of the time. And then, like I say to them, is a bit of a sneaky bit of advice because what I find is as people eat better, as you'd know, then they'll start feeling better. And then they'll go back to their unhealthy foods and say, well, I, I deserve this. I should have my hamburger. They eat the hamburger. And then how do you feel after that? Absolutely terrible. I got no energy. And so and what I find over time is people just tend to eat less hamburgers. It sounds like based on this approach, you're likely to get quite a bit of buy-in from this. But what has the initial reception or perception been, both from patients and colleagues, to your approach of focusing on lifestyle factors as opposed to using pills or undergoing surgeries to quote-unquote fix the problem? Early on, like in 2013, 2014, I would get referrals from other colleagues, including other internal medicine doctors. And it would be almost with, yeah, go see Shane because he'll talk to you about vegetarianism and with the kind of rolling of the eyes and uh, from, from colleagues. Patients uh, mixed. Generally, again, you know, you get someone desperate enough, fed up with being on 12 or 15 pills and probably having a lot of side effects from the pills. Patients had more skin in the game and had more benefit potentially by actually taking my advice. And so word got around in the small community that my God, this radical doctor is pushing plant-based foods. Like I got a few relatives. This actually seems to be working. And then over time, you know, people, it went from a snide, yeah, whatever to, well, I don't know if you can stick with it, but it seems to work. So that's, that, that evolved over about three to five years, I think, in the community. Now it's like um, I get referrals from f family physicians. Uh, some of them are on board. Some of them are not, but say, well, if you want to eat healthier and you think you can stick to a healthier diet, I can send you to Shane Williams. And so they're, even if they're not like fully approving, they're not blocking the gateway to get to me, which sometimes that's as good as it gets amongst physicians. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to come and give you the pat on the shoulder, but they'll acknowledge that, well, for people who stick with it, you, you are getting traction here. So that's where it is with the local doctor scenario. I've always had like a half dozen doctors who were very big positive supporters of me, probably personally and knowing me uh, from personality wise and, and socially have said, you know, been big supporters, but only maybe six out of the local 50 doctors. But the other ones are coming around with a skeptical cynical but sort of begrudgingly acknowledgement that oh, i gotta hand it to you it is i don't know how you're getting them to eat this way but it is working and so the doctor situation is that way in terms of the patients i think it is you know good news is slower to travel to bad news but good news will still travel so so if you do it long enough uh, with enough people and their families talk and their families talk you'll get you'll get a 
built up sort of critical mass so that when somebody related to them gets really sick, a lot of times they'll say to someone who's really sick as a relative, I hear this later that you should go see Shane Williams. You should like he I think he can help and coach you. And you'll get some people going, no, I'd rather die. I'm going to eat meat till I die. Okay, that's fine. It's up to you. It's complete, you know, informed consent here. But a lot of people will, even if they know nothing about it, will try it and get in touch with me and connect. And uh, many of those will will do a lot better. I don't know what the percentages are of how many are 100%. You know, I would say my estimate, what probably amongst my patients, maybe 20% of my patients are 100% Esselstyn, no added oil. It's tough to do. It's tough to maneuver. But but I think I would guess, just rough guesstimate on the back of an envelope type of thing, I would say 50 to 70% of people have made significant changes to their diet and have sustained it, which, you know, I consider that success. Mm-hmm. Especially when you see positive results and people keeping open minds to things. And yeah. I was wondering, are there any persisting myths or misconceptions that surround heart disease and following a plant-based diet that you think should still be addressed? Yeah, I really think, um, you know, that I think one of the continuous arguments between different health and lifestyle camps are carbs versus fats you know, that same, is it really processed carbs or is it carbs versus what's worse, carbs or fats? And I think, I think too, too much of the media misinforms people that, oh, carbs are bad. And they conflate, like I say to people, they conflate uh, the carbohydrates in an Oreo cookie with that in a starchy potato. And I think a, you know, a kindergarten kid would know that well, I like Oreos a lot better. They're not the same. <laughs> but but through misinformation and spinning that carbs, carbs, carbs being bad, I think people are taking the eye off the ball. I really think, despite a lot of the media, including some uh, media you know, personalities trying to make their name over fat and so forth, what I see every day in the practice is if people come in and tell me, oh, I'm eating better, show me your lab work. Show me your baseline lab work. And maybe I'm being too overconfident being able to predict where the trends and the deltas are. But if somebody's telling me they're eating low fat and you show me their lab work, they're triglycerides, they're fasting sugar, and the LDL has gone up, it's not too many carbs. Is that they're eating a lot of things that they don't realize has fat in it. And then when we focus on that through different tools and things like a Lose It app, smartphone app, just to really drill into how much fat, they get the fat down. I say to them, listen, even if it's only an experiment, just just work with me for 30 days and let's redo the blood work. And every single time we redo the blood work, when we focus on the fat intake, the numbers get better. So I'm willing to go out on a limb knowing that, I mean, I don't know what anybody's eating. Maybe when they leave, they're all eating Big Macs. I don't know. But all I can do is gauge by what they're telling me and get a sense of, is that legitimate or should I dismiss that? Or is it kind of a nice, friendly lie? I'm pretty sure, based on what they're telling me, that the big, big issue is still what Ansel Keys, who's been, you know, attacked, which he had a lot of wisdom. People like uh, John McDougall's, one of his heroes now, forget his name, who, for, for many, including Lester Morrison, one of the cardiologists in L.A. who started this research back in the 50s in his practice. Fat is is really the key. 
in terms of you got to get the fat intake down below 10% if you want to stabilize heart disease. If you can get it down less than 50%, 15% of total calories, you, you will improve the situation. But really, the big culprit is fat. So that's, I think, still in the media that confuses everybody. And then when they come to me and I say, you know, healthy eating is good for you. And they ask, and they ask me cynically and frustratingly, and I don't blame them. My gosh, everybody's got a theory for healthy eating. What does healthy eating mean? Fat is really, really important. And yes, Oreo cookies are not going to do you any good, but that starchy-based foods are, are your friend. And the importance of that, as John McDougall in California, now retired but still runs the program out there, the key to it is, is that you got to have starch in food in order to keep people feeling that they're fed, you know, because they associate, oh, my God, vegetarianism. Does that mean I got to eat salads all day and be hungry? No, salads are important and greens are important, but the but the foundational food really has to be a starch. Once you do that, you bring people from having like PTSD about starving the last time they tried a vegetarian diet to, oh, I'm actually feeling full now. I can do this. And I think that's that's the message that, that John McDougall has been talking about for years and teaching many of us, and rightfully so, that starch has to be the cornerstone of it. Because if you just give them, eat plant-based, and they come back. I had this one person that came back after two weeks, starving to death. What's wrong with you? Well, you told me to eat plant-based, so I went on cucumbers. You got to eat a lot of cucumbers to keep maintain your calorie intake. So you can see that at the end of it, they didn't think too much about plant-based foods. <laughs> so you got to be a bit more specific to say the starch is really, really key. And I think that's still, that's still the missing link that a lot of people are not getting that message. And the media are happy for some reason to confuse people to get them into their latest eating trends and sell their latest products starch-based diet with vegetables and fruit like john mcdougall's mantra is that's really what's going to help people and keep them fed because they want to live they want to live better but they can't go around hungry all the time that's simply not sustainable yeah mm -mm, that sounds like one of your main concerns and messages then for patients or individuals interested in this is the macronutrient distribution so that ratio of protein carbohydrates to fat and you yep. mentioned that there's tools and resources out there for people to figure out what is their macronutrient intake, such as I believe you mentioned the Lose It app. Are there other yes. resources that you would recommend? I haven't used Chronometer or MyFitnessPal, and but I think they're similar. I really like uh, Lose It. I have no affiliations with Lose It, but it's a free program. They're always trying to get you to upgrade to make some more money per month, but you can just use the free one. And I really like it because it gives, you know, a rough estimate of uh, of what your calories are like. I like it because it's portable and it's real time right in front of you, a rough idea of what you're eating. It's very intuitive. Some people say, oh, I don't have the patience to sit down. Listen, if you try it for a day or so, you'll get very swift at putting the food in. And it's a very intuitive. And it's not a it's not a plant-based app. It's not a, it, it's just the food app. So it's got everything from vegetables to Big Macs and double doubles and everything else is into it. And Tim Hortons donuts and steaks and potatoes. So it's got a really good system there. And the thing I like about it is, is, is twofold is that it makes us realize that when you sit down to a plate of food, you'll often image yourself thinking that you need a much bigger plate. And when you start using the Lose It app and it gives you the estimates for how many calories that meal should have, you very quickly realize that, my gosh, 
I'm just eating too much. Like we, we don't need near as much food as we emotionally think we do. I'm a Newfoundlander and we typically overeat a number of calories and you sit down to a meal, unless the plate was like basically falling off the end of the table in terms of height, you figure it was not even much sense in having a meal, but we're chronically overeating. Hence, that's the reason why we're chronically so sick out on the East coast. So, so first of all, the number of calories in general just needs to go down. And that when you feel that, well, but I'm going to be hungry. No, you might be thirsty or you might be tired. You're interpreting that as hunger when you literally, you're taking in too many calories. And then then the really front screen of lose it, you can do the side swipe. And that's where it brings breaks down the macronutrients of the percentage of fat, carb, and protein. Like I've heard someone say, I made him in John McDougall's, one of his uh, lectures, if you're moving your mouth and you're not eating highly processed food, you're automatically going to get enough protein. So just showing up to the meal and using your mouth routinely, your protein requirements are never an issue. Never an issue. It's going to be a mostly carb diet. So people get back to me and say, my God, I'm eating 80% carbs. I'm like, good, excellent. That's not bad. No, because the media tells me, isn't carbs bad? You know all about that. So focusing on your percentage of calories coming from fat. And in my heart disease patients who want to do as close to Esselstyn as we can, trying to get that percentage of fat as close to 10 or lower, which takes commitment, is really where we target. For the people who are like, well, I'm mostly Esselstyn, but I'm going to cheat here and there. If those people, we can keep them less than 15% of carbohydrates coming, or sorry, 15% of total calories coming from fat, then they're doing okay. But if you want to be super, super good at 100% compliance, that percentage effect got to stay less than 10% of total calories. And I find the visual with a program like Lose It and the, you know, the immediate education in front of the patient right at the dinner table immediately is you're, you're basically, they're in a nutrition course every meal they have. And I think that's a very great uh, and rapid learning curve for them. So I think it's a great, probably the best software program we've we've recommended over the past uh, five, seven years. Having accessible information that's understandable and usable it can be yeah. really important to figuring out what works for a person and what doesn't and along exactly. the lines. Of- and then over time, you know, mm-hmm. people will get more proficient a few days of it, then they'll 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 sort of be able to estimate how much fat is in things. But it, it takes it takes a little bit of on the job training like there to learn it. And then they'll realize, well, Based on a two thousand dollar, a two thousand calorie diet, you know, seventy kilogram male, to keep it less than ten percent, I think I don't know what the numbers are. I think they're in the twenty gram of fat range, somewhere like that, twenty to twenty four grams. It may vary a little bit, so check your lose it apps. But and then after a while, you get pretty crafty to know that oh, okay, a cup of this is going to give me two four grams of fat. So there's four out of my twenty four for today. And so some people want to use absolute grams of fat to monitor it. Other people want to use percentages. Everybody will come to their own monitoring that feels better for them. But just improving that nutrition literacy with real-time tools like that smartphone app, I think that's been a big advance. And speaking of nutrition literacy, in the last few minutes that we have here together, in addition to your private practice in cardiology and internal medicine at Williams Cardiology and Medical Wellness Center, you run a program called Lunch and Learn, where I believe you run two different courses that I think have been offered online in the past couple of years. 
yes, please correct yes, me sir. if I'm wrong. And thank, um, you, thank you for letting me mention that. So what we we mm -hmm. we started this as an in-person program back pre-COVID. We we ran two programs of small groups whereby, in order to introduce people to this, we would let them uh, come to a small group session, and each of the six weeks for one hour per week, I would talk about a different aspect of plant-based eating because it's not something you can really learn about, I find, in just one sitting. You know, it's a whole new concept where I don't need meat. Aren't I going to starve, you know? So one hour per week for six weeks. One week I concentrated on uh, diabetes. Another week I concentrated on uh, heart disease and would share, uh, excuse me, TED Talks by Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. McDougall and so forth and then answer questions on it. And then after people graduated from that six-week program, I would do an advanced program whereby they would have a place to come socially. And every week I talk about another aspect of either plant-based eating or healthcare or self-care, you know. So over time, when we morphed after the after the pandemic and, and put things online, we, we do have that six-week program or that six-hour program, which I guess you could binge watch it, but we suggest people watch it once a week and try to incorporate the principles and, and so forth. We had that online at Williams Cardiology. Uh, there is a small fee to access it. And then the other one that I've been running ever since COVID is this once a week, we call it Friday Lunch and Learns from 12 to 1 Eastern time. And that's a combination of, I pick a topic every week, sometimes related to plant-based eating or again, healthcare, not necessarily though, like the past few weeks I've been talking about the uh, made program and assisted dying for example and the ethical issues around that and the legislation around it so issues around emergency room treatment how to talk to your doctor and I also have sessions for q a and we do that once a week the sessions are recorded so if people who sign up for it and again there's a small fee to access it they can access the previous talks and see my bad hair cuts through the through the years and so that's that's where we currently are yeah. So if people are totally new to it and want an introductory course, they can go online and see the pre-recorded ones. And then if, you know, if they want to have a community where people can continue to connect every week, then the advanced course might be for them. A lot of people have done the advanced course, stayed with us for a couple of months, then let their membership lapse, go away for a year, then say, OK, I'm getting a little bit off track. I'll come back. And then they sign up for a month or two. And sort of just kind of do a refresher just to get, you know, because as you know, being around like-minded people, just like if you're trying to quit smoking, it's a lot easier to sort of incorporate it and stay motivated and, and you know, motivated to continue to help yourself. And where exactly may people find out more about you and your work? So if you, um, if you go to the www.williamscardiology.com, you'll be able to find out where you can find out about the lunch and learn programs and the online programs. It'll also give us, uh, give you ideas about my, where my office is located. I do currently, I'm still mostly virtual for a lot of my cardiology stuff. I do some house calls and occasional visits, uh, you know, for a day a week or so, but I'm still like a lot of physicians and consultants, mostly virtual, uh, still in a pandemic state of sorts. And uh, so that's where most of it. We also have a, a Facebook page. And uh, I think we're also on uh, Twitter and, mm -hmm. and Instagram and these places. But uh, our, we have a Facebook, Williams Cardiology and Wellness, where we try to, you know, share. We got a, quite a recipe bank there over the years where people can search on recipes. Also have, I think it's about a 45 
series, two to five minute videos that I address a number of common misconceptions about plant-based eating or, and I, I must say, I'm, I'm proud of those. They turned out pretty good. I was a little slimmer when they were taken a few years <laughs> ago, but uh, they, they turned out really, really good. So if you go into the Facebook page or search for it on YouTube, you can find those videos and, and they turned out, they turned out well, short little, you know, uh, tidbits, if you will, for, for three or four minutes in length. And uh, they've gotten good feedback as well. So we'll share some of these links in the show notes for you as well. And is there a final message that you would like the listeners to know or be aware of or to be thinking about in regards to their heart health? Well, I guess, as like I mentioned at the beginning, including these patients with very advanced chronic disease, that many people around them feel, my God, they're headed to the palliative care unit or the cemetery, that it's never, it's literally never too late. It sounds like a cliche to actually improve your dietary health and improve your heart health. And uh, yes, I'm, we may, may not be able to cure your heart failure, but your heart failure, for example, if you're struggling with that, the management of it can be significantly eased. The number of meds you require and your functional capacity, I can say with a high degree of certainty that it's literally never too late for almost any cardiac condition to stay more stabilize and improve by changing your diet. So the people who are feel that they're completely blocked up their arteries, their doctor said they can't do anything else for them, they might as well go home in the rock and cheer and die, like, is, like, like the story on Forks Over Knives. I can't say enough that it is literally never too late to improve your heart health by changing your nutrition. Dr. Shane Williams, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Thank we really you, appreciate for having it. me. Yeah, and you take care and have a great day. You too. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Shane Williams, for speaking with us and sharing his insights. And of course, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting the show. You can do this by clicking on the link at the bottom of the show notes. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole foods nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time!